Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 16th, 2017, and my guest is Vanessa Williamson, Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings. She studies taxation, the politics of redistribution, and she is the author of Read My Lips, Why Americans Are Proud to Pay Taxes, which is our topic for today's conversation. Vanessa, welcome to EconTalk. No, thanks for having me. Your book's about the attitudes of Americans towards taxes and government spending. And before we get into what you found, let's tell us uh, tell us a little where the about where the numbers come from. You did a survey as well as a set of interviews, so give us some of that uh, background, please. Yeah, so uh, I was looking at survey data about taxation, and the, you know, there's a lot of surveys out there. So some of the information from the book comes from other people's surveys, but there were some serious gaps too. And so I also conducted my own survey of a thousand U.S. adults, and then I um, did interviews with an additional 49 people to sort of fill in, um, you know to understand really how they think in addition to what they think and sort of see how their train of thought worked when they're thinking about different parts of the tax code because obviously it's very complicated and we don't really have a, a total picture of you know what most Americans even understand about the taxes they pay. So I wanted to get more grounding. What I like about the interviews, of course, it's, they're, it's just 49. It's not a, mm-hmm. a f- incredible cross-section of the American people, but it mm-hmm. allowed you to go deeper into people's attitudes rather than just uh, checking off a number from one to five or giving a, a blunt response in a, a multiple choice question. Exactly. So I, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was make it have sort of people in it that you could remember from from quote to quote so that it wasn't just a bunch of uh, anonymized, you know, random opinions sort of aggregated together. You actually got a sense of actual human beings through the book. Um, and so I think that that's one of the things that, that interviews uh, really provide. So let's talk with talk about the the point in your subtitle. You say that Americans are proud to pay taxes. That'll, that'll surprise some people. Uh, elaborate on that. Absolutely. So uh, one thing that I noticed, my previous book uh, was about the Tea Party, right? So these are some folks who were very angry about what they thought government was doing. But it struck me, you know, when I was at Tea Party rallies or at meetings, people referred to themselves as taxpayers. You know, as a taxpayer, I something. And what was interesting was the end of the sentence was never really about taxes. It was always sort of a, a frame that they used to express their right to have an opinion or their, that they deserve to be heard. And so I was interested by that. These people who were you know, very angry about government were nonetheless sort of uh, locating themselves as taxpayers. Uh, and so I thought it would be interesting to find out what Amer- other Americans thought about that question. And I, you know, also you know, we do tend to hear a little bit more from the extremes of the political spectrum. And so I was curious about what folks in the middle had to say. Um, and so what I found is, and you know, this is true across all kinds of survey data, Americans have a very strong civic commitment to tax paying. Uh, you know, if you ask people whether it's their civic duty to pay their fair share, something like 95% of Americans agree with that statement. That is an overwhelming majority um, by way of comparison. When 5% of Americans say something, it's usually something like that they don't believe that moon landing existed, you know, or that Elvis is still alive. So it's, it's 95% agreement in America is an exceptional number. Uh, and you find, you know, across a lot of survey questions, very, very high percentages of people agreeing that uh, it's wrong to hold back on your taxes or that you have a responsibility to do your part, even a moral responsibility to do your part and pay your taxes. And what's interesting is that carries over into tax compliance. Tax compliance in the United States is very high by international standards, and economists uh, often describe that compliance as having to do with our tax morale. That is to say, our sense that this is our shared responsibility and we all have to chip in. Yeah, I was um, – that was fascinating, the the different – I'd say it's a sense of identity for, for a lot of people, that, that, that claim, I'm a, as a taxpayer, comma – I, you know, mm-hmm. filling, filling in that blank. Uh, what do you think is the source of those emotions of of pride and uh, and responsibility as well, and not just for themselves but for others? Well, I think you know. I mean, it's a very human feeling to want to feel that 
you contribute, right? I mean, there's all kinds of studies showing that one of the things, you know, when people get older, one of the things that keeps them healthy is the belief that they're still contributing, that they're useful. I mean, it's a very human feeling. And one thing that I think people, you can feel about their taxes is that here's evidence of me doing my part. Now, I might not be happy about where the money's going, or I might be very unhappy, and this is the most common thing for people to be unhappy about with taxes, is the idea that other people aren't chipping in, right? So I'm the one doing my part, but other people aren't doing their part. Um, but nonetheless, that feeling of, you know, I'm an adult, I'm a contributing person, I do my bit, I'm an upstanding citizen. That's something that really appeals to people. And one of the things that your book talks a lot about and I found uh, extremely interesting was the misperceptions people have about who pays what and how much. And, I, mm-hmm. of course, I'm aware that people are not fully aware. We all know that. <laughs> but the degree to which they're not aware and why those misperceptions uh, persist was, was extremely interesting. In particular, you write that people misperceive both what the poor and the rich pay uh, in taxes. So let's start with the poor. A lot of people uh, in your results find, uh, make the point that, that the poor, quote, pay no taxes. So talk about what's correct and incorrect about that and how that affects uh, people's attitudes. Absolutely. So uh, one thing that misguides Americans about uh, how much people pay in taxes is um, the the details of the tax paying process. Now, the income tax is very salient. It's at the front of almost everyone's mind, even when it's not a particularly expensive tax to them personally, because it's a hassle, right? You know, every year you have to think about it. People are probably thinking about it right about now, actually, this year. Um, and even if it, at the end of the day the cost is small, if the hassle is high, people tend to get a little confused, right? And so they sort of confuse hassle with cost and overestimate how much the income tax costs them. Uh, Now, the income tax, of course, is a progressive tax that falls more heavily on wealthy people than poorer people, at least until you get to the very, very, very high incomes. Um, And so uh, people sometimes focus so completely on the income tax that they neglect to think about the many other kinds of taxes, which fall quite heavily on lower income people. So one question I asked uh, survey respondents is, which is the most expensive tax for their household, the biggest tax they pay? And, you know, people for, and then because with their demographic and and economic information, I tried to calculate their taxes, right? So, um, and I found that people, generally speaking, knew the biggest tax they paid, um, but they, when people forgot the taxes that they paid, it tended to be the ones that are easy to pay, right? So many, many, many people forgot almost entirely about the payroll tax, right? Which is pays for social security and Medicare. And everyone chips in on that if you're working. Um, or alternatively, middle-income people tended to forget about the sales tax because they don't have to do any work to pay it, right? You go to the store, they take it out. You don't really think about it. And you certainly don't add up that total over the cost of, over the, over the year, but for lower income people, the sales tax is a very real expense. Lower income people are very aware of the cost that they're paying when it's six, seven percent at the grocery store because, you know, they're watching every penny in their budget. So what I found is that because people focus on the income tax, which does uh, hit the rich more than the poor, and because they tend to forget about the taxes that are easier to pay but are actually very expensive for lower income people, overall, they underestimate taxes paid by low income people. And this is really compounded when there's sort of rhetoric about the 47 percent, you may remember from a few years ago, 47 percent of Americans don't pay net income taxes. So that sort of rhetoric uh, in, in the sort of public sphere really compounds the mistakes people make drawing from their personal experience. And you gave a bunch of reasons just now and also in the book about why people might forget about certain kinds of taxes, that they're not salient, they're not in front of their mind, they don't have a hassle, they get paid out immediately. But the other reason I always think about it, and I'd be curious in your reaction, I don't think you talked about this, is um, the fact that we've been told over and over again that our payment in the payroll tax to fund Social Security and Medicare is a, quote, contribution rather than a tax, that it, I think a lot of people are under the illusion that it pays for their own Social Security or is put aside for them or is, you know, <clears throat> saved in some, invested in some dimension. Of course, it's not. It goes out the door immediately and until recently uh, and in the near future, it, it went toward everything. Uh, and it was, it was no different than the income tax in terms of where the money went to. There was such a surplus in the so-called Social Security account that the money went to pay for food stamps and war and everything else. So I, I always have felt that our people's ignoring of the payroll tax is, um, is just, a, a, I think, a terrible flaw in how that 
program has been, those programs have been marketed. And I think, to be honest, to be, it's been marketed dishonestly to the American people. What do you, what do you think? Well, one thing that struck me was that people, if I asked them their biggest tax, they would not mention the payroll taxes, right? But if I asked them to name the taxes that appeared on their paycheck, they did mention it. So this was a really striking difference. It wasn't a salient idea. It wasn't at the forefront of their minds. But if you asked them, you know, they would say, oh, there's the income tax, and then there's, you know, the FICA. And I was actually... I mean, it, it always depends, you know, what level of expectation you have. But I was actually pretty positively struck by the amount of information people tended to have about the Social Security and Medicare taxes, right? They tended to, one, remember them. About, so it was slightly lower, and I'm going to forget the exact number off the top of my head, but it was something like 70-something percent of people remember the income tax when I asked them on the survey, when I asked them uh, to name the tax on their pay stub. And 60-something percent of people remembered uh, the, one of the Social Security or Medicare tax or both. And so, I mean, it was a relatively high-level understanding that those costs exist. In the interviews, I found people tended to know. Uh, they didn't tend to think it was in an account for themselves. In fact, a lot of them were worried that there wasn't going to be any money in Social Security. That was a very common concern. Noticed, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, which is its own, uh, you know, sort of policy error problem that, you know, deserves its own book, an examination of that question, I think. Um, but uh, the, so in a way, there was they had this understanding if you drew their particular attention to it, but they had almost no opinion about the tax at all. Because if I, they would name the tax, and if I followed up and asked them about what they thought about it, they'd just talk about Social Security and Medicare, the programs. They didn't have any thought about how the tax was collected, how much they were charged versus other people. You know, certainly things about the cap were not common knowledge. Um, and there wasn't, you know... A comparison point might be the gas tax, right? So the, if you ask people about the gas tax, they're upset about two things. One, the quality of local roads, because they know it goes, it's commonly known that the gas tax goes to local roads. But two, they're worried about the actual cost, right? They're like, why can't I see it? Doesn't it cost a lot to people who drive a car for a living? You know, they have thoughts about whether the tax itself is fair. And it was very uncommon for people to have any opinion at all about the tax component of the Social Security and Medicare tax program. Right. So I think that uh, you're right that there is, on the one hand, this complete lack of information, right? People really forget that cost. But on the other hand, you know, a, a piece of that program is quite visible because they at least get to see the number on their pay stub. So it was sort of an interesting mix of visibility and invisibility. Yeah, the problem with the pay stub, of course, is that after a while you never look at it. Um, at least I rarely do, and I don't know what other people, how much other people look at it. I, it the book did, your book forced me to realize that if I had to guess at what my actual taxes paid are, mm-hmm. and I'm an economist who's interested in taxes, <laughs> uh, I would have trouble, I don't know how close I'd get. I mean, I'd have to think yeah. about it for a while to get close, and even then I wouldn't. So even though, with the part of it, of course, is that uh, unlike some of your uh, survey uh, surveyed folks and interviewees, uh, I, I get deeply depressed by my taxes. So I try not to just, I try not to look at them. And so that's, I'm in a separate category maybe. Um but I think it's interesting how little we look at that generally when we don't have to uh, write a check. As sometimes, of course, sometimes you do, but a lot of times you get a, you get a quote refund, and it's mm-hmm. because you paid in too much. And but there's a lot of psychological, I think, problems we have in in perceiving those those things accurately. Uh, but my preference would be uh, for a lot of reasons just to get rid of the payroll tax, roll it into the federal income tax. And um, have it be people be more a little more aware of what those uh, taxes are, and as you also point out, the the fact that the employer's share is part of it is another reason people may not perceive it fully. And so I just don't mm-hmm. I don't think that's good for democracy. I think that's a form of of obscurity that's not good for us. I mean, I think that's actually one of the most important takeaways from the book, right? That when we think about policy, you know, I'm here in Washington, D.C. When we think about policy, we're often sort of imagining that we're going to do things in an invisible, behind-the-scenes way that just creates good in the world in some way. But we forget that part of policymaking is making what government does visible because people out in the world are not just supposed to respond to little economic nudges, right? They're supposed to make decisions about who to elect to implement policy. So they have to be able to perceive it, and they should be able to perceive it accurately, right? And one of the best ways to make people perceive things accurately, I mean, people learn by doing, that's just a fact, is to make, uh, particularly for the issue of taxes, it's much more easy than on some issues, like, you know, what we're doing in foreign countries. It's very hard for people to perceive that on a regular basis. But with taxes, you know, people have a day-to-day experience of these uh, policies, and we can use that experience to make a more informed citizenry. 
right? So I think that's one of the most important takeaways is exploring ways that we can use the taxpaying process to make people better informed. And you mentioned the gas tax. I think I'm older than you, maybe by a substantial amount. Uh, when I was younger, the gas tax was posted. There was a, mm. a sign on the pump and it gave you the price of the gasoline. And then I think it gave you both the state and the federal taxes. And of course, the state taxes vary quite a bit um, across states. And that explains a good chunk of variations in gas prices across states. But most people aren't aware of that. If I remember correctly, and I have to check this, I think they made it illegal to post those prices, which I found um, just, just given what you just said, it just a, a really bad policy uh, response to that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the I don't know about making it illegal. That's fascinating. I'll have to look it up. Um, but I think that it's, it's sometimes, you know, and I certainly have heard it, uh, you know, here in the Beltway, you know, there's a desire to just make taxes something people can't see. Yeah. Well, the gas tax is a good example of why that's a bad idea because people do not like the gas tax. Right? Even though they understand that it goes for roads and they like roads, they should like the gas tax by that standard. Yeah. But because they don't know how much it is, and you know, because gas prices vary so dramatically based on things that don't make a lot of sense to the average person, um, people tend to sort of ascribe a lot of that to taxes, you know, because it's invisible. They don't really know. And of course, the other thing about the gas tax that's quite unusual, with the exception of something like a cigarette tax, uh, is that it's based on the volume as opposed to the price. So you know, it's it's natural to think given the sales tax, that when gas prices go up, taxes are going up too, or at least the government's getting more money, right? That's but that's right. obviously not how it actually works. In fact, to some extent, I guess it would work the other way because if people consume less. Um, so the, the gas tax really has sort of all of the bad uh, parts of making a tax invisible and none of the benefits of you know the visibility that might come from, hey, this is a tax for people who use roads that pays for roads, which is the sort of system that you know, normally is the kind of thing that people find appealing when the cost and the benefits seem linked in an yeah, obvious no, way. I, it's, it's one of the best, it's by far, I can't think of a better tax, actually, in terms of, uh, uh, well, maybe the one I'm playing cards, and no, I'm kidding. Uh, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's the fact that it's more like a user fee or something akin to a user fee. It obviously, um, well, I just think it's, a lot, I, I'm a fan of that. Uh, a quick Google search suggests that maybe it differs by state and whether you can post or not. So we'll do a little ah. research on that, and uh, we'll put something up more generally, I hope. Let's talk about the rich, um, higher-income folk. Uh, a lot of people misperceive uh, in your survey and in your interviews what they pay. Uh, what is, mm-hmm. What's the nature of those misperceptions? So uh, I was not sure when I started this process whether uh, most people actually understood the difference between a flat and a progressive tax. That is to say, did people have the sort of uh, numeracy necessary to make a distinction between uh, taxes that are set at a flat rate and therefore wealthy people pay more because 5% of a million dollars is more than 5% of $100? Or are they are they really clear on the distinction between that and rates that actually go up themselves, right? And I was actually, there's some good survey work on this and it, it fits with what I found, which is that people are actually pretty good at that. They're not always great at explaining it out loud, no. which is understandable because even I, you know, if I have to think very carefully to say it exactly right, right? Uh, but uh, they actually do understand, for instance, that there are graduated brackets in the income tax. As a general rule, it's relatively well understood. Um, and when you you know ask them questions about what tax system they prefer, they uh, you know can answer those questions in, in meaningful ways with percentages that go up. Right, most Americans support uh, taxes that are a, a progressive tax system that falls more heavily on the rich. And when you ask them to actually do the math on that, they tend to you know continue to, to hold that opinion. Um, so that was good news, right? That basic level of numeracy is exceptionally important if we're going to have uh, real any engagement of any sort on tax issues. Um, but again, in part because of the experience of tax paying, uh, people tend to think that the income tax with its graduated brackets is undercut uh, at the top end by loopholes. Now, of course, to some extent that is true. You know, wealthy people do have access to certain parts of the tax code that average people can't really access. They don't have enough money or they don't do the right things with their money. Um, but you know, as a whole, the income tax is in fact progressive, at least until you get up to the very, 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 very high numbers. You know, it is mostly a progressive tax. But 
But people underestimate that uh, in part because when they're filing their own taxes, the thing that matters is their quote unquote loopholes, right? Uh, so, and I should say, by the way, when average people, and also when I use the word loopholes, I don't mean it in the technical sense of an accident of the tax code. You know, they're referring to all kinds of things that were done absolutely on purpose, <laughs> right? Um, so, but you know, at any income level, when you're filing your income taxes, uh, you're thinking about what you might think of as loopholes, right? Lower income people are going to get their earned income tax credit. Uh, maybe you've got to remember that you have your mortgage or your student loans or you've got books or you've got an office at home. I mean, there are a million little things that you've got to remember that, have, that aren't about the rates that have a huge impact on how much that you personally pay, right? And we, the income tax paying process doesn't draw very much attention to rates, right? Now, if you do it, the, your tax the very old-fashioned way on paper, you might look at the rate chart for a minute chart, to look yeah. at that last number. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, that'll show you the marginal rates, which is by the way, exceptionally poorly understood. Uh, and most people, you know, you've got an accountant who does it, you go down to H and R block, you go down to TurboTax, you get your TurboTax software and you know, maybe it shows you for a second what your effective rate was, but that's not information that's really salient because you can't do anything about it. And because, uh, you didn't have to remember anything on your own. So, uh, because the income tax planning process draws your attention to finding the ways uh, that you can get, quote unquote, your loopholes, they, people extrapolate outward to the very rich and think that what matters for their taxes is the access to these loopholes, right? And it, what it does, unfortunately, is mislead people about the likely impact of most flat tax plans, right? Most flat tax plans that get put forth would substantially lower taxes for wealthy people, but a substantial part of public support for flat tax comes from people who want to raise taxes on the rich. And for uh, interviewees who I spoke to who held the, that view, their explanation was that a flat tax system without loopholes would raise taxes on the rich. You made an interesting remark. You said, except for the dare, the very top 1%, um, except for the very high end. At the very high right. end, there's a lot of variation exactly. in uh, what people pay because Depends on where their income comes from, whether it's exactly. whether it's labor income, whether it's investment income. But the top one percent overall pay a lot of taxes, and it's it's interesting Absolutely. to me how little known that there's sort of two things. Or there are a few things that are a little known. One is you you talked about in the book, which uh, I thought you were going to mention just now, which is that people forget that when you get quote put into a higher bracket, that is, if you earn enough money to have a higher tax rate, that only applies to the extra income. It doesn't cause the lower amount of income to be taxed at that higher rate. Uh, right. And as you say, it's hard to explain. I just did the best I could on my feet, and it's not a very good explanation, <laughs> right? But the second thing is, is that even with those loopholes, on average, mm -hmm. really rich people pay a lot of taxes. So the top 1%, and of course, it's hard to there's different ways of defining the top 1%. You can find it's the top 1% mm -hmm. of income earners, the top 1% of wealth, the top 1% of mm -hmm. adjusted gross income. But the top 1% mm -hmm. earns a very disproportionate share of income and pays a very disproportionate share of taxes. And it's just important. Uh, I think that's not well known. Right. So I think that people tend to – that's absolutely right. I think that people tend to focus on uh, you know the occasional story of – uh, a very wealthy person paying a low rate of taxes. So uh, Mitt Romney's taxes or um, George Soros's taxes or what have you. Sort of Warren Buffett is an example used a lot. People talk about these wealthy people, but these people are not in, just in the top 1%. These people are, you know, people like George Soros at the very, very, very top, you know. Um, and so we're really talking about like the 0.001% and what taxes they pay. And that's actually quite different from people who are, you know, near the bottom of the top 1% and maybe they're, you know, uh, a wealthy doctor or, you know, a fancy lawyer or something like that. And they have a lot of earned income, right? They have a, you know, job, it's just a high salary. And, and they pay quite a lot in taxes, right? So there's, there's a huge difference. There's not a lot of loopholes for people who earn a lot of labor income, right? It's you're going to exactly. pay a high, you're going to pay a big proportion, and just you're going to get certain deductions if you have if you give to charity, if you have a mortgage on an expensive house, sure. Mm -hmm. And again, as you point out, those aren't really loopholes; those are just the way the tax code's designed. But you're going to pay a lot in taxes, right? So that's I think uh, so. The the problem with those a couple of very prominent stories of exceptionally wealthy people. 
uh, paying a rate that's lower than, you know, someone who's a doctor or a lawyer is that we forget about all the people the, who are, you know, by any standard well off, but are not in that sort of astronomical obscene tax you know, situation of sort of money that the, the rest of us can't even imagine. Um, getting back to the question about marginal rates, I think it's a really important thing uh, that people... There's an, a common error that people have in their mind, which is that if you go from tax, uh, one tax bracket up to the next one, your whole income is going to get taxed, right? And so people see that as punitive, which, of course, it would be if it yes, were true, it right? Be. That would be, a, that would be quite stupid. unfair. It would be more than um, unfair. Yeah. It's stupid. It's a bad way to design the system. It would be a very bad policy, and it's a good thing we don't have it. But because people perceive the system working that way, that all of a sudden you go from 10 to 15 percent, you're going to be paying more than if you made fewer dollars um, – the, it, it reinforces this idea uh, that, um, you know, the income tax can punish work, right? Well, it, as a matter of fact, you know, if you move up, if you're, if you move up and you make $5 into the next bracket, you're going to get taxed at the new rate on the $5, not on anything else, right? Yep. So one piece of language I heard in this election year that I thought was interesting is Hillary Clinton was talking about a surcharge on incomes, which was just a very high bracket, basically. But... It might have been, and I, I was wondering, and I haven't looked into it yet, whether that might be language that makes people understand how brackets work, right? It's just a surcharge on that income, above the other income. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard concept to explain, but it's a really important one, and it would be uh, a great place to see some improvement in public sort of financial understanding. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's a common uh, misunderstanding, and part of it's what you pointed out, that we don't, most of us don't move dramatically between brackets all the time and think about what those con- <laughs> what the, the consequences are of that. So it's just not right. a, and we don't notice it necessarily, even if we do move frequently because our taxes are filed with, you know, we, our money's deducted from our paycheck, the tax money's deducted from our paycheck. Um, one of the things that struck me about the book, and I, you didn't emphasize this because I think for a lot of reasons, but uh, I'd curious to get you to talk about a little bit more is even though, I mean, we're talking, these are small things, you know, this, this issue of marginal versus uh, average rate is, is somewhat important. Mm-hmm. But but there are a lot of – one of the things that you took from your book is how widely people misperceive uh, what, say, immigrants pay in taxes yeah. or what government does with our tax money. Um, and you know, one view is that's not surprising. Most people are not tax experts. They're not – they didn't study public finance in college. They don't – they're busy with their lives and, of course, they – they don't uh, read carefully. Uh, they don't have an incentive to. But what struck me about it is that, oh, and, and you do refer to this indirectly and sometimes directly, a lot of these perceptions are part of people's partisan identity. You know, they, as Republicans or Democrats, for example, or as liberals or conservatives, they hold a certain view of, say, immigrants or government spending or welfare. And they're not going to let the facts get in the way. <laughs> They're just they <laughs> they they have certain perceptions of the system. They get relentlessly reinforced by the news that they watch, left or right, mm-hmm. by the blogs that they read, left or right, and those perceptions just outweigh the reality. Um, and I just was struck by how damaging that is for a democracy, uh, that that unwillingness that we have, and it's a human frailty, to be open and honest about how the world actually works, and particularly in these, this area that's so central, which is taxation and spending. Did you, do you agree with that? I mean, I think it's a serious challenge, and I think that, you know, I mean, there, uh, there are things in my book that I think, you know, um, suggest that politicians are sometimes unwittingly reinforcing misinformation. You know, every politician I've ever heard on any part of the political spectrum rails against loopholes, right? Because it's popular to do so. Makes sense, right? But what you're doing is reinforcing a fundamental misunderstanding about the impact of rates, right? Now, maybe you do that intentionally in order to promote your tax plan that you know, closes some loopholes over here and then does something to rates and you hope people only notice the loopholes because the other part's not popular or something like that. But, I mean, I think you hear it on both sides. So it's not uh, entirely, uh, you know, it, it can't just be motivated. It's, it's just a bad way of conveying information, right? So I am not so hopeful about changing the incentives of politicians to speak more honestly. Where I am hopeful is 
that on, particularly on the question of taxation and what government does, a lot of that stuff is actually visible. A lot of that stuff is experienced in daily life. And if we made, rel- I think, relatively small changes that alerted people to things like, you know, um, you could, for instance, get a receipt for your sales taxes, not your personal sales taxes, but maybe your zip code, right? I mean, people in the zip code who have an income of X usually pay about this much money each year in, in sales taxes. And that goes to support X, Y, or Z thing because the sales tax goes to the state, right? So like you could, you could provide people and people, this sometimes happens already. I think there was a period where they were doing this for social security and some localities do it for the uh, property tax. Um, you could provide people with information about where their money's going that might actually, I mean, it's been shown experimentally in these small cases uh, to improve people's understanding. So I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to get uh, politically motivated people uh, at the top to suddenly do the right thing about having a more engaged and educated populace. I think a lot of people have bad incentives and bad motivations. But I think that I came away from my interviews, you know, people are making mistakes, but they're reasonable mistakes. They're mistakes that come from, you know, they're wrong, but they didn't make, they're not enumerate, right? So it's, to me, it's a mistake that's actually a source of hope. Because it means that the changes we need to make are not like a fundamental reconsideration of teaching math in schools because people are getting out into the world and still don't understand percentages. That's not what I found. What I found is that people are extrapolating from personal experience the way we tend to do on all kinds of issues, right? And because of the way tax information is given to them, they're making mistakes. And smart people are making mistakes. Educated people, politically engaged people are making mistakes. So that suggests to me that there's a place there where we could do a better job of getting information to people who would use it well. Well, I think the, the the key part of that last sentence she said was we, um, and I think the we in that sentence, as you argue, is not going to be the we among us who are politicians, but it could be the we among us who are think tanks. You're at Brookings, I'm at the Hoover Institution. Mm-hmm. Certainly a nonprofit organization could spend more effort educating people. Of course, the organizations do it explicitly. There's the Tax Foundation and others that that try to make people aware of what their taxes are and how much they, they paid, et cetera. Again, I just emphasize that even myself, uh, one of the thoughts I had reading your book is that one of the reasons people overemphasize income tax over payroll taxes, it's so much larger as a source of income. And I looked it up. It's not that much larger. I was surprised that it's, I think in, the re- in recent years, the income tax is 46% of tax revenue and the payroll tax is 33. So mm-hmm. it's bigger. But it's not as much bigger as I would have said if you'd asked me to guess. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we're all imperfectly informed. But what I found more – the more provocative part of what I was trying to say is this idea that we kind of like being misinformed. We like being angry about the mm-hmm. rich or the poor not paying their fair share. And we really don't want to have it pointed out to us. We like to <laughs> – that we're wrong. We like to carry our resentments around because it makes us feel better about our identity as as liberals or conservatives or Republicans or Democrats. And I think – that um, partisan uh, team identity tribalism is just, I really don't like it. It's just me. Uh, I think it's just really destructive. And uh, the fact that it engenders uh, ignorance is uh, is part of the problem. I mean, I think that there are challenges there, and there's some really interesting work being done to sort of assess when and why people actually respond to new information. You know, sometimes people will just filter it out. Um, and so I think that that's actually kind of a, a frontier in political science that there's work being done. And I think we have some really interesting, uh, we'll have some really interesting answers about in what context people are actually willing to take on new facts uh, and adjust their views. Right? I'm actually going to do some of this work myself looking at, you know, can I improve people's information about who pays what in taxes and actually change their views? Um, so, yeah, I think that that's something that requires uh, more attention. And the place where I think it's going to be hardest, unfortunately, is on the question of immigrants. Um, because that's not just a partisan team question that dives into some really deeply held and really unfortunate aspects of how people think, which is that, you know, people are quite, there's a a xenophobic strain and there's a racist strain in how people think about the world and about others. And, um, I think it's very hard to overcome those very deep prejudices, right? Uh, so what is, uh, commonly believed about immigrants is that they don't pay their fair share of taxes, right? And this is, um, wrong. <laughs> Fundamentally, immigrants pay a great deal of taxes. Um, in particular, immigrants are, and particularly unauthorized immigrants, are doing um, 
are often paying into Social Security and Medicare without the capacity to receive those benefits because they're not uh, here with the right paperwork. Yeah, always forgotten. They're they're propping up our Social Security system because we have an aging population. And of course, they pay, you know, sales taxes like everyone else. And a lot of people also, um, you know, pay income taxes. They also pay property Uh, taxes indirectly in their Mm -hmm. either as owner directly as owners or indirectly as renters. So, uh, yeah, that bothers me. Um, And I'll also add, though, that that uh, in my being pro immigrant in general as I am, I I get a lot of um, of responses when I mention that xenophobic and racist stuff. I think a uh, phenomenon. I think a lot of people. A lot of people who are worried about immigration really resent being called xenophobic and racist, and I'm sure there's at least one person listening right now who's in that group. I, I do think it's an issue that all of us as human beings struggle with people who, quote, aren't like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think there are there are legitimate issues about taxes and spending with respect to illegal immigrants. It, it's It's an issue. I agree with you that I think it's overblown dramatically and many pieces are forgotten uh, because people, I think, have general views that are not related to the taxes. They just get lumped in. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, one um, one challenge uh, that I think we face is that there, you know, and I saw this in interviews a lot, that people would sort of elide, right? They would be thinking about, they would talk about immigrants and then they would sometimes talk about, you know, people, undocumented people. And then they would sometimes say Mexican, right? Yeah. And so there was an idea that was like, when people talk about immigrants, sometimes they're not talking about, like, for instance, my mom, who is an immigrant, she's from Scotland. That's not who they have in mind, right? And so and we are all capable of these mistakes, right? And I think, you know, it's incumbent on each of us to fight those uh, prejudices that we all carry around with us, right, on many subjects, including about new people to our country. And we're certainly not the first set of Americans to have these concerns about new people yeah, in our country, right? We saw years exactly, old. Yeah, exactly. 250 right? years old. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you look back and you see that people were very concerned about whether the Germans were going to integrate and the Italians were going to integrate, right? And so, you know, we haven't, and that's, that's part of what makes me pessimistic to some extent about the extent to which we can change people's views of that because that has been such a longstanding problem. Uh, for us, you know, on the one hand, we're this nation of immigrants, and on the other hand, uh, you know, each new wave of immigrants uh, gets, uh, you know, it's, it, assumptions are made about them that are not accurate, not factually accurate, and um, which undercut our, you know, sense of social solidarity, which is one of the things that makes us good taxpayers, right? We have faith in one another. We're, we have a common projects that we need to pay for, right? We all need roads. We all trust each other to chip in our taxes. We're going to get the roads that we want. We're going to get the schools that we want, right? Well, you start to doubt whether everyone in the community is actually this us, and it undermines people's confidence in the tax system. Yeah, so I, you know, I totally agree with you, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm passionately pro-immigrant overwhelmingly in general um, in the sense that I think the economic dangers of immigration are grossly overstated. I think the cultural implications are, are grossly uh, overstated the the worries, but having said that, I think it has to be said, and it, this came up in our recent episode with uh, George Borjas, who's much more uh, anti-immigration than I am. But he makes mm-hmm. a point that I think that I where, where I think I have common ground with with him and, and with some others is that we have changed the rules of assimilation in the United States over the last I don't know maybe twenty five thirty years. And made it much easier for people not to assimilate. We've offered, uh, you know, dual language opportunities and dual language tracks in our schools. And I think that's just a fundamental mistake. I think that makes it harder for us to feel like we're part of one country and part of one, part of one project. The, you know, I don't have a lot of nationalist bones in my body, um, uh, so it's kind of awkward for me to talk about that. But there is some benefit from feeling like we are part of one community, uh, that may be unrealistic, that may be a fantasy, but certainly when we make it easier for people to stay separate, um, I, I don't think that's a good idea. If people choose to stay separate, I'm all for it, right? If people want to live near people like them, who talk like them, who have attitudes like themselves, who have the ethnic background that they have, I think that's an inevitable part of uh, the human condition and nothing wrong with that. We obviously mix our 
integration with each other with our separateness from each other, right? We we move across all kinds of spheres. Uh, I just think it's weird that over the last few decades in the United States, we've we've essentially subsidized uh, people staying separate. That seems to me to be a big mistake. Well, I mean, sociologists would say that immigrants are integrating at exactly the same rates they always have. They're learning English at the same rates. They're opening businesses at the same rate. You know, it's not, there has not been some fundamental shift in this most recent generation of immigrants that's unlike previous generations to the extent that we have data on this. Now, on the question of whether, you know, we should have dual language schools, my son is in a dual language school. He speaks as much Spanish as English, and that's not thanks to me. My Spanish is appalling. Uh, And I think that's a wonderful benefit. I'm proud that we live, you know, I live in a diverse community and I'm proud uh, that my son gets to experience other cultures. Uh, And, you know, and I think that the, you know, the challenge is making sure that that happens in a way that's, you know, fair for everyone in the community, right? And that there are ways that we can, you know, reach out to one another and and learn and grow from each other. And, you know, obviously some people, uh, you know, in gentrifying communities, I think that there's a real, there are real challenges of people getting pushed out, right? This is not some beautiful melting pot story, but, at the end of the day, like, I'm proud that my country is diverse and I'm proud that we speak a lot of different languages here and I'm proud that our language, you know, develops in new ways. Uh, and I think that th- those are, you know, that is part of the American tradition. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the boundaries of that are in, in the sense that I, I like learning a second language. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's a question of what's mandated and what isn't. Um, and I, I do think that there is a uh, long historic fact that parents who immigrate come to the United States from non-English speaking places have a lot more trouble learning English than their children, regardless of you know how much mandated uh, second language stuff is going on. Um, but yeah, no, I think diversity is a good thing, and I love the idea that we're helping people who want to come here and provide um, work here and do the things that provide stuff of value. And I think we should be free to hire those folks and um, and uh, they should be free to live here. So it's to me, it's just a question of where those boundaries are in terms of eligibility for um, government benefits, uh, tax paying, et cetera, and how, again, how easy it is we make it for people to, to, um, to become part of that melting pot. Uh, but I do think it's an interesting phenomenon that that we do both. We want to be part of the melting pot. We want to be Americans, but we also want to keep our ethnic identity, whatever the hyphen that often that we want to keep. And that's just that's a reality too. I mean, from my perspective, I think that the most important thing is that we recognize that you know we have common goals, and we do, right? Like, I don't know if about we that. Create, I, if we create. That, I'm not sure what you mean by you that. You don't think we have? Well, I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. I, 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 yeah, we have so common I mean, goals. Look, Tell me what you mean by that. I mean, we're off the so, subject I mean, of taxes, we, but that's fine. Go ahead. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to taxes, right? So when we think about what are the things we want government to pay for, right? We want clean air, good streets, decent schools. You know, there are, these are common goals, right? Because, like, I can't just have good streets for me. That doesn't make any sense. That, like, uh, a if only my children are educated, then they, obviously the economy would collapse. But the, the point is that there are things that are common goods, right? And I can't just provide them for me and my family, even if that was the self-decision I wanted to make. Uh, and so the, the question, you know, of immigration and more generally, right, this is a diverse country in a lot of ways and not just because of a new wave of immigration. Uh, we live in really, you know, different parts of the country are really different. And we're a very large country. And making sure that we focus on the, you know, the, the things that we need to do together, right? That's what taxes are supposed to pay for. And I think it can help us bridge, you know, divides of, you know, not just um, race and ethnicity, but, you know, uh, rural-urban divides, right? We have very different ideas about what our lives are like on a daily basis. Um, but we have, you know, shared needs, right? We, we need the roads, Right? We need uh, you know, to maintain the infrastructure that uh, lets us be one country. Right? So to me, that's actually the thing that's kind of great about studying taxes. Um, because on the one hand, you know, you're talking about a subject that 
I, even an economist like you doesn't really want to think about that much, right? You, want, you don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of it. You don't really want to think it through. It's, it's a painful experience every March or April, whatever, to get the paperwork done. You don't want to think about it. But you talk to people about taxes, and you tap into their deep values immediately about who's us and who's them, about whether they feel represented by their government, about uh, what kind of country they think we should be. Right? So that's what's the really great thing about uh, studying this question. Right? It's not just about forms and rate tables and marginal brackets, all of which are interesting and important, but uh, it's about the way that we work together to pay for the things we all need. So let's talk about that because that's where I was going to turn next anyway. And I, I, I'm going to try to summarize, and I'm, then I'm going to disagree with you on this issue of all of these shared goals. So we'll, we can <laughs> – See where we agree and disagree. Uh, in your in your survey results and maybe in your interviews as well, you found that people like roads, san. I'm reading off a list here of yours: roads, sanitation, mm-hmm. fire, police, education, and national parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you found a lot of interesting stuff about foreign aid and military spending, which we're going to come to in a minute. But let's just stick with these local, um, more local, within our borders at least activities. So. Road sanitation, fire, police, education, national parks. I had two thoughts. One is a good chunk of those are local, not federal. Um, the only really federal part of that is uh, national parks. A little bit of the federal highway system, a little bit of education. But roads, fire, and police mostly come – and sanitation mostly come locally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic about those. I'm a, I'm a libertarian, mm-hmm. a classical liberal – I like limited government. I want a bigger sphere for private activity, both profit and nonprofit activity. But if you said to me, government's going to provide the roads, sanitation, fire, police, and the national parks. I'm leaving off education. We'll talk about it in a minute. But roads, sanitation, fire, police, and national parks. I'd say, yeah, well, like you point out, I, I can't go on my nice road and your road, your road has potholes. We're going to be on the same road. So you can make a case for private roads. I don't find it that persuasive, and it's just not that big an issue for me. So – Mm-hmm. I'm okay with all that. You, let's let government do road sanitation, fire, police, and national. And I love national parks. They're often badly run, and they tend to subsidize uh, attendance and wear out the ecosystems, which is a natural political response. They take out wolves often because wolves are scary, uh, which is bad. Mm-hmm. So Yellowstone, I think, was mismanaged for about a hundred years. But overall, I love the national parks. You know, I got my quibbles. But if you take road sanitation, fire, police, and national parks, you got a really small government. You don't have – there's no welfare in there. There's no subsidies to corporations. There's no farm subsidies. There's no uh, National Endowment for the Arts, et cetera. Uh, all the stuff – I think we could do without all that other stuff. And if we just did road sanitation, fire, police, and national parks, we'd have a tiny government – really low tax rates, and we could all pretty much agree that those are good things. Once we had those other things, we get into a lot of fights. We don't agree. We have a lot of disagreement. And certainly, and edu- well, I'll come to education in a sec. Just respond to that first. So uh, I might as well start by sort of uh, putting your views in the sort of the broader context of what, how other people think, right? So what I found is that um, there's sort of an array of programs. Oh, I should be clear. Um, I, I asked people two questions on the survey. I asked, what are you glad the tax dollars pay for and what are you upset the tax dollars pay for? And then two I questions, put that on a graph. Two questions related to this, conversation, this part. Yeah, to yeah, this particular question. question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, so there are two questions that are relevant for this particular part. Um, and so I looked at two things. I looked at how often was the program mentioned, positively or negatively. And then I looked at, among, you know, given that you mentioned it at all, how often were your comments positive? Right? And so the programs that did best in terms of if someone bothered to mention them, they were mentioned positively, tended to be local services, right? Uh, education, roads uh, were both extremely popular, 90 plus percent support for these programs, that sort of a thing. Uh, and we're also, education and roads were also very commonly mentioned, about a third of people mentioned them, right? And then it, other programs were just as popular but were less commonly mentioned. So you'd see things like you know, the sewer system. Anyone who bothers to mention the sewer system thinks that it's a good thing that we have one, right? But um, it's not always remembered. So, so that's what you'd see. You'd see the sort of swath of, of programs that were thought of very positively, some more commonly remembered than others, right? Um, 
Then at the very bottom, right, the least popular programs, which were also not, weren't brought up all the time, were basically, there were two major things, right? One was foreign aid, which I can talk a little bit about how people think about foreign aid. The other was corporate aid of one sort or another. So no one in my survey bothered to mention uh, bailouts for banks in any way except as a negative thing, right? Um, so, so that was sort of the spectrum, right? And then in the middle, you've got all the major components of the welfare state. Now, Social Security was almost as popular as those local programs you mentioned. Um, and then healthcare uh, was, you know, had quite high levels of popularity, but was, had, was a bit, had a partisan divide, as you'd imagine, right, with Democrats much more positive about it than Republicans. Um, the military had very mixed views because there was uh, generally, uh, unsurprisingly, strong support for American service members, but strong concern about the military engagements overseas, as I expect anyone who watches the news would imagine that that's how Americans think about that question. And then finally, there's um, welfare spending, right, which is a, a category in which I put any program that was means-tested, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's food stamps, but it's also TANF. I mean, it's all the, all the programs. And then also a lot of people on a survey, when they're asked an open-ended question, just say, you know, quote-unquote welfare, and it's not clear what they mean by that. Sure. Um, so, right. So there are those programs at the top with, you know, near consensus approval, uh, you know, in, in your list plus education and social security, uh, I would say. And then some things that no one likes. And then these things in the middle that are, um, uh, have people have mixed views, right? Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, there's, um, there's always going to be a place in our politics for uh, disagreement, politics needs disagreement. We should not all think alike, and we should have an active debate about what uh, our country needs to be like. Right? Um, and so, for instance, you're, you're uh, dropping education from your list of programs that you think, yeah, we should definitely be paying for that. That makes you unusual uh, as an American. Um, but that's fine. I know a, that. There should be a public debate. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I think that that's, that's sort of the spectrum of people's views, right? And, um, you know, one thing that was good for me to hear is that there are things we all agree on. And, you know, and I think that the, the fact that, you know, major other parts of what our government does or something we're discussing is, could be a sign of the vibrance of our democracy if it were getting uh, channeled upward into our politics in a way that was meaningful. And I think that's where it falls apart. Right. That's not what we see happening. We do not see, you know, uh, a, uh, a debate going on in our, um, at least not often do we see a debate going on in our legislatures that really, I think, captures the, you know, the essence of these issues so that we can discuss them in a meaningful way. Yeah, just to be clear on, on a lot of these, um, there are a bunch of things I think government does that shouldn't be done at all, like um, some of our foreign policy adventures. And if government stopped doing them, they wouldn't happen because we're not going to band together to make them happen. If government stopped funding education at the federal and even at the local level, there'd still be a lot of education. It just would be paid for out of pocket by the consumers and parents and who are the consumers on behalf of their children. And I believe strongly because it even happens now that a lot of people would donate money and schools would be started, not-for-profit schools would be started that would help educate people who didn't have the means to pay for their own education, which is uh, I think would be a much better system than the one we have now. A much better system for poor people. That's just really important. I, you know, Obviously, there are different reasons people might resent certain types of spending that the government does. I, I'm against government spending on education because I think it's not just ineffective. I think it's a system that has punished poor people for a long time. So I, I know you were speaking casually earlier when you said, well, if we didn't have educational spending, it would be a disaster for the economy. I don't think it would be at all because I presume – I might be wrong – I presume that private spending would respond in, in a very dramatic way if government got out of that business. I don't think it would respond in a dramatic way to other things the government does, foreign policy adventures, corporate bailouts. I don't think people would be voluntarily giving to charities that, that give money to corporations. And I think it would be really hard to organize roads and sanitation privately. So I think those are examples where the money is very well spent. But I think on education and certain other areas, it's been uh, a disaster. Now, I'm, you don't have to respond to that. You can if you want. And otherwise, I'm going to move on to a different point. Well, I mean, I'll say, I'll say, and this is my opinion as a citizen. It has no particular bearing on my book, which was merely to present what most people's views are. Um, but you know, you know, to explain my earlier comment, I think I would say that. You know, we have a 
we have historical information about how good education is when it's not publicly funded. And I think if you look at the literacy rates in the United States South for a long time before there was robust public funding for education, you'll find that they were exceptionally high. Moreover, uh, I think I would say that I don't think it should be the case that if you are a child born to poor parents, you should have to rely on charity to get an education. I don't think that's the country we should live in. But that's, you know, but this, us having this discussion is great. Us having this discussion is the kind of thing that needs to happen in our politics, because when we talk about taxes, we're talking about really fundamental things, about what we think are rights. What do we think people have a right to access? What do we think American kids should all have, no matter what? whether people are feeling charitable that day or not, right? So this is, I think, exactly why, uh, you know, the sort of discussion of taxes and, you know, people seeing themselves as taxpayers is such an important thing because it, it provides for people a sense of this vital question of what we, what we pay for together. But let's move on to other, other things because I would be happy to talk about education just, and immigration as just a citizen, but yeah, I feel well, like I that's probably not what your I'm, listeners want. No, I don't know. I, I just got to make one more uh, thought on the education. I don't think a, poor, a child born to poor parents should have to suffer through what is currently our public school system. And I think our um, failure there is, um, is inexcusable, actually. I, I can't. I find it fascinating that we have, we as a body politic have let that happen. Um, maybe you're more optimistic than I am about it getting better. I don't know. I mean, I'm a product of the American public schools and I think that any examination of my resume would <laughs> suggest that it didn't turn out terribly. I grew up in a rich suburb of Boston. My parents weren't rich. They were middle, you know, middle class at the time. Uh, but I grew up in Lexington. I got a good, pretty good education at Lexington High. Anyone out there listening? I uh, went to Lexington High. Hello. But um, in Dorchester and Roxbury, I don't think they had a very good education. Uh, there's a lot. Yeah. I just don't. I mean, obviously, there are many things that we can improve about all kinds of aspects of you know, the education system and so many other things, right? I mean, my husband's from Boston, grew up in the city of Boston, went to Boston public schools, and he turned out okay, too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there's, um, I think that it's great that these kinds of discussions exist in our politics, because I think that the thing that tax money does is give us a, a place where democratic decisions get made about the, our priorities. And the fact that you and I personally disagree on this thing is just an example of that. Yeah, right? An example enough. of the system that we need. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's talk about an issue that I, I thought you didn't pay enough attention to in the book. It's kind of surprised me. And I, it's something I hadn't thought about until I read, the, or until I read your book. So it did, did prompt me to think about it, which is a difference between local, state, and federal taxation. I think when a lot of people think about taxes, and you talked, we talked earlier about the salience of income tax versus others, and one of the reasons we think a lot about the income tax uh, is that we talk a lot about changing it. We don't talk a lot about changing the sales tax. It's not there aren't a lot of campaigns that I'm going to raise the sales tax a quarter of a percent. It happens. Mm -hmm. There are there occasionally that that's an issue on the ballot or in a in a in a political discussion. But my, the property tax rate, uh, the sales tax. Uh, other types of, of local taxes, things that fund local taxes, are often – they're just not up for grabs the way that the federal tax code is seemingly constantly in the, in the air. So that's one reason. But what struck me is that – maybe you'll, you'll agree or not – a lot of the taxes that people – a lot of the spending that people like is local or, as you point out, people like Social Security. They actually think that they're contributing to it. You, you find some evidence that people feel that they're entitled to it because they paid in – which there's mm -hmm. some truth to. It's hard to, you could interpret that in different ways. But I just was struck by how often, I think when people are talking about their taxes, they're talking about their federal taxes. And, and the reason it's important is that, you know, you talk a lot in the book, we haven't talked about it much here, but you talk a lot in the book about a feeling of, of collective sharing of responsibility and a feeling of identity and how it, being a taxpayer, taxpayer entitles you to complain or not complain. And, I kept thinking, well, it's interesting that when you when you have this perception, which I think is inaccurate, that 40-something percent of people, quote, don't pay taxes because people forget about the payroll tax and they don't think about the, the local taxes. They're really thinking about the federal tax part, which is the, the, the defense budget. It's 
it, it's overwhelmingly the defense budget, not in the sense that mm-hmm. it's most of taxes, but it, once we've taken out Social Security and Medicare, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be inevitably talking about defense spending. And I just think that's mm-hmm. a, um, that's a lot of what's going on in people's misperception that they, they see their tax identity as Americans as mostly the federal tax and they, the local stuff, which they like. Uh, that's stuff they don't even notice the taxes for. It's just kind of strange. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's one of the things that makes taxes controversial in a way that in some sense it needn't be, you know, because there are these huge swaths of what we buy with our taxes. We just happen to mostly buy it locally or at the state level that we like all the, all Almost all of us agree, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right that like the focus at the federal level uh, does, to some extent, make taxation seem more controversial than it otherwise could. And particularly not just at the federal level, because Social Security and Medicare are relatively well-liked programs, in part exactly because of what you say, that people feel they've chipped in and therefore have earned them. Um, but specifically looking at the federal income tax, it is, that is the sort of hotbed of controversy, right? It's both a very complicated part of the tax code, which people don't like because they feel like it allows for cheating. Um, and on the other hand, it pays for things that are highly controversial. Let's, so yeah, I think that's exactly right. Before we before we leave, I, I, we've got a few more minutes, but I want to make sure we talk about two issues that that really were informative uh, that I hadn't thought about. One is when it's very common for pundits to make fun of the American people because they think foreign aid's a big part of the budget, and of course, foreign aid's a tiny mm-hmm. part of the budget. Uh, but you really uncovered something I think really important. Talk about the way people conflate uh, foreign aid and defense spending. Exactly. So this is a common statistic that people regularly use to suggest that Americans are very dumb, right? Oh, when they are, they are so upset about foreign aid and they think it's this huge part of the budget. Foreign aid is in fact about 1% of the budget. If you include all the security aid, it's maybe 1.5% of the budget, something in that order. And when you ask Americans to estimate it, you get an answer that's often something like 25% of the budget. Wow, are people ill-informed. But when you, so I looked at some survey work on this and I wanted to understand, and I had noticed in the interviews, that when people talk about foreign aid, they're often talking about military spending. You know, they would talk about, they, they don't think we should be spending so much on foreign aid. And then go immediately into a long discussion of what was happening in Afghanistan. And of course, there is absolutely foreign aid going to Afghanistan. Now, there's also vastly more spending that was military, certainly at the time. There's a particularly large amount of interviews a few years ago. Um, and so the question to me was, are people using the phrase foreign aid when they mean foreign spending, shall we say, which includes parts of the defense budget that are spent overseas? And uh, survey research would suggest that that's true. In fact, people who were asked to estimate foreign aid and then asked what they meant by foreign aid, those who said things that were military had substantially higher estimates of the foreign aid budget. Right? So this does not mean that people are, have perfectly accurate views of the foreign aid budget. Rather, it means that they use the term in a colloquial way that's different from how policymakers use it. That is to say that when people say foreign aid, they don't just mean the technical part of the federal budget that is allotted to you know, humanitarian assistance. That's not what they mean. They mean the vast amounts of money that we spend overseas, yeah. which includes a lot of the military budget. Yeah, it's a fan- just a fantastic uh, insight. And a related one is this, uh, which can kind of just su- really surprise me, but it, I think it really explains a lot of what uh, people hear when they hear politicians, which is different from what I hear. Uh, when politicians rail against waste, fraud, and abuse, I assume they're talking about it's a really tiny portion of what government does. Uh, you know, government does since a lot of what government does sends checks out to people. There's not a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. There's a little. There could be some fraud. People could be lying about their status, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. and, and tricking and being deceptive, and that's real fraud. But in general, waste, fraud, and abuse is a very small part, in my feeling, of what government does. Um, government spending. And so, when politicians say, "When I come in, I'm going to cut waste, fraud, and abuse. I'm going to save all this money," and I always think. It's just not that much to cut. It's just a, it's a lie. But among your respondents, they had a very different perception than what I think of as waste, fraud, and abuse. So talk about that. Exactly. So, right, you, you're thinking in the technical policymaker term, right, which is about, you know, uh, over-ordering, double-ordering, yeah. you know, that sort of thing, you know, fraud, as you mentioned, you know, these sorts of things, you know, contracts that were just uh, overinflated, like received fraudulently, yeah. exactly, right? Overinflated, sometimes defense spending, overinflated, these sorts of ideas. And that is part of what Americans are talking about when they talk about waste. But when you ask them about uh, what they mean by waste, 
first of all, they talk a great deal about programs they don't like. Yeah. Right. So, and that on the on the left, where you know we're talking about defense spending, on the right, they're talking about welfare. Um, but you know, this is what people are mentioning: programs they don't like. Now, that is not reasonably described as waste if it is, in fact, policymakers doing what they're what the bulk of the American people would like. Now, you might reasonably consider it waste if you think that the entire program is ill-conceived, right? You could use right. in a in a non-technical sense, yeah. you could call that waste because obviously it's pound foolish, right? It might yeah. be penny wise, but it's pound foolish. So people commonly use waste that way. So when you get estimates of waste that are approaching the 50% mark, if you ask people um, what percent, how many cents out of every dollar do you think uh, the federal government wastes? Uh, and the answer is often, the average answer is often somewhere around 50%. Right? People are not actually thinking that uh, there's 50% of the federal budget goes to crooks who are overinflating their contracts or cheating some sort of program. Right? $400, $400 toilet seat, yeah, coffee maker exactly. in some budget. Right. So, so, there's some of the, so there's some of those things. People definitely remember the toilet seat and they remember um, uh, the bridge to nowhere comes up. Yeah. The hammer was commonly remembered as sort of an example of waste. These are well-known examples. Yeah. But they're also talking, and they're talking about, but they're also talking about these programs they, they don't like entirely. Right, uh, and they're all, finally they're talking a lot about systemic problems they see with our democracy. When people talk about waste, they move very often from waste to, for instance, corporate control of uh, you know that congressmen are bought and sold, or uh, you know they're all so rich and they live these luxurious lifestyles here in Washington. You know, and so what the word they use is waste, but the critique is really of some kind of elitism of a government that's not um, living up to the sort of democratic promise, either in that they're not responding to their constituents or that the people who are elected live lives so far apart and above from average people that uh, it's sort of fundamentally corrupt. So people's estimates of waste are often tapping into those much larger sentiments about problems with government rather than, you know, the much more specific terminology that you, you and I would use, uh, you know, instead of technical terminology about waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, and, but the problem, of course, is exactly what you said. It means that politicians can rail against waste. People imagine there's immense amounts of it. And at the end of the day, you're not going to balance the budget uh, easily by rooting out that waste, fraud, and abuse. And, you know, it, it just doesn't provide enough bang for the buck, basically, um, to yeah. do what politicians often claim yeah. that it will. But it was some comfort for me because, you know, I, I understand uh, it was nice to know that some people, might, as you earlier said, I'm, I'm not like most Americans. I think that's really an accurate observation. But this is one place where I'm somewhat similar in that I would call, mm -hmm. uh, in a casual sense of the word, say, an Amtrak subsidy, which I benefit from often, or a uh, various corporate uh, welfare programs as wasteful, even though they're not wasteful mm -hmm. in the technical sense of the word, meaning, oh, the money didn't go where it was supposed to. It's going where it's supposed to go. It's just uh, something I don't think mm -hmm. it's worth spending on. So just to close, um, you had an interesting question. You asked your, uh, your respondents about if they were writing a book on taxes, what would be the most important chapter? So I want to close by asking you, your book has, I think, has five or six chapters, I can't remember, but there are, mm -hmm. there are a lot of different ones. What's your, what's your most prominent takeaway that you want to share uh, from your book that uh, would summarize what you think is our overall view of taxes? I think the most important thing is to recognize that people see taxpaying as evidence that they're contributing people. And when they're angry about their taxes, the most common thing they're angry about is the idea that someone else isn't paying their share. We have this important civic commitment you know, we're all in this together, and someone's not chipping in. And unfortunately, as the rest of the book shows, uh, people have real strong misinformation about that particular question that uh, makes it hard for people to connect their values with policies. Right? And so we need to do a better job of getting them the information they need so that you know, smart, educated Americans who have misperceptions of the tax code can get their values to be reflected in the policies and the politicians that they support. My guest today has been Vanessa Williamson. Her book is Read My Lips, Why Americans Are Proud to Pay Taxes. Vanessa, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. 
The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.